We are entering yet another election season. I know I don't have to tell you this, you see it on the news, the, the competing visions for what kind of leader our what kind of leader our nation needs. Most of those competing visions have to do with telling you what's wrong with the other side and how their vision is terrible and that person shouldn't be trusted. Um, but for right now, we know that a year from now, we should presumably know who the next president is, but for now, it's, it's, a, it's an expectation. We have an expectation, we have a hope uh, that, that this will take place. Last week when we left off in Genesis 3.15, we left off with an expectation. Genesis 3.15 pointed us forward. It, it gave us hope. It was the first proclamation of the good news where it described the unleashing of evil on God's creation, that which takes uh, what God has made that is very good and now mars it with sin, but there is the hope that one is coming, the offspring of the woman who will bruise the serpent's head, and through that, there will be victory. Uh, we have this hope before us. The good news is that Satan and evil will be defeated and there will be a crushing blow. We don't yet have all the details. It really is just in seed form, this expectation that we have at this point. It's not clear from Genesis 3.15 exactly who that victor will be, but God promises that there will be descendants from Adam and Eve. And through that offspring, victory will come over evil and death. It's not long after Genesis 3.15 that we get a sense for how Adam and Eve viewed that promise from God. The balance of Genesis chapter 3 is the curse on the man and the woman, uh, the pain in childbearing, the, the, the work of, of tilling the earth, of tending to the ground, all of that, that's part of the curse. And then you get to Genesis 4 verse 1, and it says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of of the Lord. If you think about it, the one prohibition that, that Adam and Eve had been given was to not eat of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was what they were prohibited from doing. The command they were given was to uh, multiply and fill the earth and have dominion over the earth. And so that's what they were told to do. And so I, I think Eve's exclamation in Genesis 4.1 has a couple of pieces to it. At least part of that is a statement of Look, we've obeyed, we have multiplied, we have, we have done what you have called us to do, and, and clearly she is in the process acknowledging that it is God's help. The curse brought about pain in childbirth, and it's clear that Eve understands that God has given her strength through this childbirth. But the other thing that I think comes through in what Eve is saying really harkens back to Genesis 3.15. Because if you think about what we saw there, there is this promise of offspring and it uses the masculine pronoun. He shall bruise his head. And so there is this expectation of a descendant of a coming victorious offspring. And I don't think it's any coincidence that Eve is thrilled that her firstborn is, as she says, a man. That, that, that this is perhaps in her heart and in her understanding at this point, remember what you said. And now there's offspring and it is a son. This is, this is a man that I have brought forth with your help. And so maybe this could, could be the one that could be the child of promise. We've seen this over and over again, this theme in scripture of man's logic 
not always matching up with God's sovereignty, that God does his sovereign work and it doesn't always fit what man thinks is right or reasonable. And this is one of those instances that not only was Cain not the child of promise, but he goes on to murder the second born son, effectively taking the first and second born out of the picture and now perhaps leaving some hope in the third born who is Seth from whom Noah descends. But the point I just want you to see is that already... Genesis 3.15 yields a sense of anticipation. Among the, the, the first man and the first woman, there is already this sense that what God means by that is there is some coming offspring that is the child of promise, that, that, that will bring forth this, this victory that is promised. So if we fast forward, Go ahead, a number of biblical generations as the genealogies are, are given to us. More than 400 years pass from the time of the flood in Noah's day to the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. We remember this, talked about it just a couple of weeks ago in, in terms of the nation of Israel. Genesis chapter 12 describes Abraham being called out of Ur, out of his country, to leave the land that he was in, to leave his kindred, to leave his father's home, to leave all of that and go to the land that God sends him to, where God says he will make a nation from him. Genesis 12 verse 2, I will make you into a great nation. What follows, again, seems entirely contrary to human logic. Because you've got this guy who is already, he and his wife passed the presumed age of childbearing, and yet this promise from God that you will be the, the beginning of a nation, the occupants of that nation then will become so numerous that they will be harder to count than the stars in the sky or the grains of sand on the seashore. They will be an abundant nation, and, and, and all of this is to come through Abraham, who, as we've seen before, tries to take matters into his own hands because he can't fathom that he can actually have a child through Sarah. And so he goes through Sarah's servant, through Hagar. Genesis 16, 16, after Ishmael was born to Hagar, it says in Genesis 16, 16, Abraham was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. One verse later, a lot of time passes between 16 and 17 in Genesis. Genesis 17, one says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him. It's been 13 years now, and the Lord appears with a promise in the form of a rebuke. The rebuke is that you've, you've taken things into your own hands, and you've tried to, to force this situation in terms of who the heir will be that I promised, but I have promised you a natural-born heir, and he reiterates in Genesis 17, he reiterates that I will give you a son through Sarah. And it says that Abraham falls on the ground in laughter. A Abraham is just marveling at this. Lord, really, are you saying that at 100, Sarah will be 90, that we're going to become parents at that point, that, that there is going to be a child born? That's laughable. We know the story. Not only does God provide the descendant through Abraham, but indeed, he says, this is the one through whom I will keep my promise. It is not Ishmael, but rather it is through Isaac that I will keep all of my covenant promises. Seemed utterly unthinkable to Abraham, but it is true. Isaac will be born. But in the process of making these promises in Genesis 17, I just want to draw your attention to one verse in Genesis 17, because this is that 
We've been talking about this thread of hope in the Old Testament, and I want to see how it matures a bit today. Genesis 17, 6, he says to Abraham, this about your heirs. I will make you extremely fruitful and will make nations and kings come from you. This is an enlargement of the promise now that we started with in Genesis 3.15 of an offspring. Now there are nations and kings. Think about it for a moment. Abraham understood what kings were. Sodom had a king. Gomorrah had a king. Back in Genesis 14, Abraham had this incredible encounter with this king of Salem, this, this one who is Melchizedek, who is clearly God's sent messenger to him, perhaps a, a, an appearance of Jesus Christ before him. Uh, but it is a, for Abraham an understanding that there are kings, there are these earthly rulers who have the power to do as they will, so he understands what they are. And, and Genesis 17, 6, as far as we know, is the first time that Abraham is given the promise that your descendants will include royalty, that there are kings coming through your line. So the offspring that we started with in Genesis 3.15 is now starting to, to take some shape in, in that it's not just an ordinary man, but this one may be a king who bruises the head of the serpent. You and I, I know, have the, the benefit of hindsight and the record of the New Testament, and so we're already knowing the end of the story and where this is going, but if we, if we pause and, and put ourselves here in this timeline, here in Genesis, at this point, things are just, just developing. It's, it's, it's just a, it's a young expectation. It's the beginning of hope in terms of what it is that God is doing. And, and now through Abraham, we're beginning to get just a, a little greater glimpse into who it is that is coming. By the time we get to the end of Genesis, and we will this morning, that, that, that glimpse will become even clearer in focus, but, but there's some serious obstacles along the way. Obstacles that it would seem time and time again threaten God's purpose and God's promises. First one happens just a few years after Isaac is born. The, the child of promise is given to Abraham and Sarah. His name is Isaac. And while he is still a young boy in Genesis chapter 22, what does God tell Abraham to do with his precious son? Go up on the mountain and sacrifice him there as an offering to me. Give his life as a sacrifice to God. It was from the start of Genesis 22, the, the writer tells us it was from the start God testing Abraham's faith to show the genuineness of Abraham's faith. Uh, very much this is a, a precursor to what centuries later, millennia later, James would teach us in James chapter 2 when he says that faith apart from works is a dead faith. It's just a, a verbal sort of profession, but it's not a real faith. And here it is in Abraham. He has shown his faith. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And this test is now a, a demonstration of his obedience. It, it, it is the same for you and I who believe in Jesus Christ, that we are called to not just speak that profession, but to be obedient even when the will of God doesn't seem easy, even when he calls us to be obedient in situations that we struggle to be obedient in. Abraham did. Now we know God provided a sacrifice. The ram who was caught in the thicket is sacrificed. And, and in doing so, God gives to us a glorious picture of the coming redemption where God will indeed give his own son to be the sacrifice for sins. And so in that moment with Isaac, we see this picture of, of ultimately the Lamb of God being the sacrifice for sin in our place. But at least for the moment, 
if we're tracking this back in time, that ascension up the mountain at least leaves some question of how does this all work in terms of God's promises? If there is a seed coming, God will have to do something. He will have to raise Isaac from the dead. He would have to do something to, to continue that, that line. So Isaac grew, he married Rebekah, who gives birth to Esau, to Jacob. You remember the story, God chooses the younger of the two. They, they are born as twins, but God chooses the younger Jacob over the older Esau. And Esau then later sold his birthright to Jacob. Jacob is blessed by God in Genesis 35. God changes Jacob's name to Israel. And in Genesis 35, verse 11, this is what God says to Jacob. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. There it is. There's the continuation of the promise. And interestingly enough, God says, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. Same language that he used at the beginning of Genesis 17, which was the passage in which he said to Abraham that I will bring kings from your line. Here he is again saying, as, as difficult as this is for you to imagine, I, the Lord God Almighty, I will bring this to bear, El Shaddai. And so Genesis 17 says, I am God Almighty. This is what I will do. And so we've now seen it through Abraham. We've now seen the promise continued through Jacob that kings are coming. Go a chapter later in Genesis, chapter 36, picks up Esau, the older brother, the one who is not the child of promise. And chapter 36 tells us Esau took his wives, sons, daughters, livestock, that all that he had acquired in the land of Canaan, and he moved them all to Edom. Edom would be just south of the Dead Sea, sort of the southeast of, of Judah, what today would be the southwest corner of, of Jordan. And so he moves and settles in Edom. And in Genesis 36, it describes Esau's genealogy and says this in Genesis 36, 31. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom, before any king reigned over the Israelites. It's an interesting point that Moses interjects in recording this for us. We've seen now twice the promise from Abraham to Jacob of kings, but now he points out that before Israel had kings, Edom already had kings. And so again, we're left at least with a question at this point. The line of promise doesn't have any royalty in it, but the line that is not the line, that Esau's line, that's not the line of promise, there are kings. Back in Genesis 27, when Isaac spoke to his son Esau, he said to him, you will live by the sword and you will serve your younger brother. Yet, here we are, Esau's line has royalty settled in Edom, the line of Jacob so far does not. Again, if, if we don't know how the story turns out, this seems like at least another bump in the road. Like it's not quite going according to plan at this point. Sort of an obstacle to fulfilling God's promises. They're kings, but they're in the line of the wrong descendant. And so what's happening here? 
We've seen God repeatedly do reversals, and, and this is certainly one of those. Second Samuel chapter 8. Next week we'll be in 2 Samuel 7, a little bit in 8, but as we trace this line of hope. But just, just to jump ahead, to, to, to be clear about the story, the rule of King David is described in 2 Samuel 8. And one of the things that it says there is David and his army defeated the Edomites and took them as servants. 2 Samuel 8.14 says all the Edomites became David's servants. The offspring of Esau serving the offspring of Jacob, just as Isaac had said to Esau would ultimately happen. So God's promise is fulfilled. But that's jumping ahead. For now, back in Genesis, we're still, we're still seeing these, these situations that seem to undermine the reality of what God's promised. Genesis 38. Won't spend a lot of time there, but it is a sordid story about one of Jacob's sons, Judah. Judah marries a Canaanite, they begin to have sons. The firstborn son, secondborn son are both evil. They are both killed in judgment of God. And so the firstborn and the secondborn are struck down. The widow of Judah's first son turns to her father-in-law, Judah, for some kind of relief. What will happen here? If, if, if I am left a widow, then there is no heir for the firstborn there is presumably no inheritance or blessing that comes, and Judah is dishonest with her about how he will provide for her. And you can read it yourself, but she eventually resorted to trickery to ensure that she would have a son who would receive the inheritance. The significant point for, for what we're tracing here as we're following this line of promise and, and looking for this hope through Genesis, the significant point is here's another obstacle. One Old Testament scholar put it this way, Judah demonstrated an unfaithfulness which threatened to destroy the promise of a posterity. On the surface, Judah's actions really don't look that significant. He is the fourth son of Jacob. And so we're, we're talking about fourthborn here. He's not in the position of the firstborn. So what's the issue? Well, Here's, here's where the problem comes up. Turn to Genesis 49, because this is where we'll really spend just the rest of our time in Genesis 49. In Genesis 49, glorious scene, Jacob calls his 12 sons to himself. Imagine this, you are at the end of your life. It is soon your time to go on to glory, and you are able to gather with your sons and impart to them Promises, if you will, prophetic promises. Gen Genesis 49.1 starts this way. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. You could literally translate that in the last days. This is prophetic language. It's the kind of language we find in Isaiah speaking of the last days. And so Jacob's nearing the end of his life. And he's literally about to tell them things to come, things to come in the last days, things that would otherwise be reserved for prophets. And Jacob's giving prophecy here. So this is important stuff. Jacob begins by saying to his firstborn that Reuben, you, your sin, you, you have lost the place of preeminence. Because of your rebellion against me, your sin, you are not going to be the one of firstborn blessing. Then he says to Simeon and Levi, number two and number three, you have been violent men. You have 
killed others in anger. I would not seek counsel from you. Uh, You are not the ones. Who do we come to? Judah, to the firstborn. Interestingly enough, we've, we've just gone through Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Genesis 49, verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Jacob's choice of Judah as we're going to see unfold here, is God's will. It is by God's design that Judah is now elevated. From Jacob's perspective, if we're going to look at this purely from a a, a human level, the, the selection of Judah probably in some sense goes back to Judah's protection of Jacob's youngest son, Benjamin. If you remember the story, Jacob is under the assumption that he has already lost a son, Joseph, who was taken into captivity in Egypt. Jacob not aware yet that, at, at least earlier in the story, that, that Joseph was now in leadership, but they are going to Egypt for food, and there is concern now because that leader down there, that ruler there, wants to see Benjamin. And it is Judah who steps up and says to his father, I will stake my life on protecting Benjamin. I, you can trust me that your youngest son will come back. You have my life as the promise of that. And so, in a sense, Judah has stood out before Jacob as, as the one now who is, has stood above his brothers in providing this protection for the youngest. And for whatever reasons, if that's it or not, here in Genesis 49, ultimately Jacob designates Judah as the promised heir. Judah's the one who the others will bow down to, it says. Judah is the one who, whose hand will be on the neck of your enemies. You ever grab the, 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 the nape of the, you know, the dog the, by the back of the neck and you pull him back and sometimes they'll make a big noise just to try to, you know, you're, you're torturing me or something like that. This is a sign of his power. He will be the authority. Judah will be the one through whom enemies will be defeated. From the other sons of Jacob's and uh, other sons of Jacob and, and their tribes, they will ultimately bow down to Judah and to his heirs. Let's read on. Judah, verse 9, Genesis 49, 9. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. All right, think of where we've been so far. Promise in Genesis 3.15. God then chooses Abraham. God then chooses Isaac over Ishmael. God then after Isaac chooses Jacob over Esau and, and, and to his promised ones, he, he says there's coming nations, there's coming kings. Then God chooses Judah over Reuben, Simeon, and Levi and now says that tribute, royal tribute is to be given to this line, that, that, that the one who will be recognized is Judah. That's why the story back in Genesis 38 is so important. Because for a moment there in the story of Judah and his descendants, it looks very much like the line is about to stop. And it is only through Tamar's actions of trickery that ultimately there is an heir and that line continues. Judah though, 
looked like he was not going to be the channel of blessing. And yet God overturns that. And now here is Jacob speaking as God's representative, telling them of things to come, saying, Judah, all of your brothers will honor you. Of all my sons, you are the ferocious lion. Your tribe is like the lion who goes out and seizes its prey and takes it back to its den and sits there contentedly with its prey and says, go ahead, I dare you. Come and take it from me. Make my day. Nobody's going to challenge the lion. The lion is content in its place and the enemies run in the presence of the lion. Lion has always been a symbol of great strength, but in the ancient Near East, it is repeatedly a symbol that is used by kings as a mark of strength and power. They are identified by the symbol of the lion. In terms of Israel's history, we can find a near-term fulfillment to Genesis 49, verse 9, quite simply, in a young man who, as a shepherd, had a reputation for killing bears and lions. You know him? His name's David, right? David becomes king over Israel. And 2 Samuel 7 will tell us how, how God was with David in battles with enemies so that God gave victories to David so that ultimately the people would be at rest. His nation would be at rest. And so when we look at Genesis 49.9 and we think of this lion from the tribe of Judah who defeats enemies and who brings peace to his people, it's, it's very easy to say in the near term, that's David, it's King David. But verse 10 is really interesting because verse 10 says the scepter and the ruler's staff, the symbols of the king's strength will remain with Judah. So this, this hold on authority, on leadership, on power will remain. We only have to go two generations from David to find things unravel. Uh, two generations after David, Israel is divided into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, and we fast forward not long after that, and both nations are dragged away into captivity and exile by Assyria and Babylon, and, and the great power that was Israel is now this scattered nation that is being punished for its own sin and rebellion. Again, we could stop here and go, is that it? What about the promises? How does this end? That last part of verse 10 is really quite interesting. The ESV says, the scepter and the ruler's staff will not depart from Judah until tribute comes to him. That phrase, until tribute comes to him, is variously translated in the Hebrew. It's a little bit more difficult, and that's why on your ESV you have a footnote that says it could be until he comes to whom it belongs. It's another accurate way of translating the Hebrew there. I, I think the CSB kind of pulls it all together and it says it this way. The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. It's important, right? At first blush, we're seeing the scepter and the staff as being in the hands of Judah, but it, 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 it doesn't seem clear as to whether or not that might come to an end or, or whether that's waiting for a certain tribute to come from the nations. But it's clear the scepter and the staff reside in Judah. But if that 
translation in the way the CSB has put it is correct, and I would suggest to you that that's ultimately what, what Moses is trying to get at here. What it's saying is, one day these symbols of strength and royalty will be possessed by the one to whom they have always belonged. One day one is coming who deserves the staff and the scepter, and he's saying until that day. They will remain in Judah until the one to whom they rightfully belong comes to claim them. You see, we've seen this from Abraham, this coming kings in the line of Abraham, this royal line through Jacob. Now it's being told through Judah. But here's, here's the promise now taking shape one step further. The tribe of Judah will rule, but there is one coming from the tribe of Judah who will come to claim the scepter and the staff, and this is the one to whom they ultimately belong. This is the long-awaited ruler, and when he comes, this lion of the tribe of Judah, then all the peoples will owe obedience to him. That language really has the idea of all the peoples will submit to him. There's one coming who will be that ultimate ruler. And so, yes, David is in the short-term view here in Genesis 49, but the long-term view has someone else in mind. If we jump forward to Isaiah 53, and the, the servant song in Isaiah 53, the one that God has chosen who will come as the servant to ransom his people. Isaiah 53, 7 says that God's chosen servant would be like a lamb who is led to slaughter. That's, that's why Advent, that's why the, the true meaning of Christmas matters so much to you and I. Because we understand that in the coming of Jesus Christ, God takes on flesh. Jesus Christ now becomes the perfect, spotless, sinless lamb who gives himself in sacrifice for us and for our sins, who lays down his own life and is slaughtered for the sins that, that we have done. And, and he takes the sin on himself and experiences the Father's wrath in our place. But Jesus Christ rose from the grave. So let me fast forward. We've gone all the way from Genesis to Revelation. In Revelation chapter five, worshipers are surrounding the throne and they are singing what we were singing just a little bit earlier this morning. Worthy is the lamb who was slain, the one whose blood ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Worthy is the lamb. Friends, that's, that is a picture of part of Genesis 3.15. That is the striking by the serpent of the heel of the offspring. That is the, the painful suffering of our Savior on the cross. But you remember how Revelation 5 begins? They are in heaven and there is this scroll that needs to be opened. And it seems that no one is worthy to open the scroll. And John, is, who is experiencing the vision of the book of Revelation, is weeping because no one is worthy to open it. And Revelation 5 verse 5 says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. See, there it is. There's, there's Genesis 49, 9, and 10, Jacob's promise to Judah 
is this prophetic word of one king who is worthy. One king who is worthy to rule. One king who Revelation says is worthy to open the seals on the scroll. That king is Jesus. The lamb who gave himself to be slain for you and I to rescue us. That lamb rose victoriously from the grave and by rising demonstrates that what he was doing on the cross actually conquered sin and death. What he was doing on the cross, Genesis 3.15 says, he will strike the serpent's head. So he is suffering, but he is also conquering. The serpent painfully bruised the heel of the offspring, but the offspring actually bruised the head of the serpent so that ultimately the Lamb of God, who was struck and slain on the cross, would rise as the Lion of Judah and rule as king and all will submit to him and see him as Lord. There are thousands of years from Moses giving us the record in Genesis to John giving us the vision that he sees in Revelation. And you will have people who will tell you that the Bible is just this assortment of stories, books written by men, and, and it's just a bunch of mishmash and different ideas about morality and all that stuff. And I want to tell you, what we, what we see here is that from Genesis 3.15 all the way through the book of Revelation, there is this clear thread, and it is Jesus. It is the, the promise of the offspring of the Son, and so the promise in Eden, the promise in Genesis 12 to Abraham, the promise to Jacob, the promise to Judah in Genesis 49 is all pointing to the Messiah. They, they are all revealing a first advent the one that we celebrate here in a couple of weeks when God took on flesh in order to die in our place. But now, praise God, we are awaiting the second advent when the Lion of Judah will come from heaven for his people and to establish his kingdom and we will gather together and say, worthy is the Lamb, worthy of honor and blessing and glory and strength forever and ever, amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love to see in Scripture just the glorious majesty of Jesus Christ, even, even as we read narratives in Genesis that sometimes slow us down and seem complicated and difficult with sin, stories that, that just sometimes we struggle to, to wrap our minds fully around, and yet as we as we see these things, it's just the unfolding work of your hand in, in taking the stuff that, that confounds humanity, that defies the highest of human logic, that takes man's best plot making and scenario planning and turns it all upside down and shows a sovereign God who is carrying out his promises step by step, all leading to this one great Lion of Judah. Lord, we thank you that the great Lion of Judah is the Lamb who was slain. And Lord, our hope rests in that. I pray, Lord, that if there's anybody here this morning listening online who lacks that hope that was born in Genesis of the offspring of the woman who would defeat the serpent's head and defeat sin and evil, I pray that today they would see that 
that this is all pointing to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that in Christ, there is forgiveness. In Christ, there is life. In Jesus, there is hope and forgiveness for all who will turn to him and trust in him. And so I pray that today you would make that truth to come alive in the hearts of any here who are not yet believing in him, that they would see Jesus as the glorious Savior that he is. And Lord, for we, your people, help us over these coming weeks. We will be tempted to be distracted by so many things and preoccupied in so many ways, but help us not to lose sight of the glorious Lion of Judah and to remember that in our celebration of his incarnation, we are eagerly awaiting his return and we are living in the light of that, eager for the day when we will join that chorus singing, Worthy is the Lamb. We pray all these things in his great name. Amen.